0: Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator John Wood. Welcome to the Process This podcast. This is episode number 55. Well, thanks for joining me. I hope you're doing well today. Today, we have the segment, What's On My Mind, followed by the segment, Mailbox Mania. Lots of good stuff in this next half hour, but before we get into the segment today, I wanted to talk about something that I know is on everyone's mind, and that's the Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, new name the HSPA Annual Conference and Expo. As of right now, as of today, which is January 15, 2022, the in-person Conference and Expo is still on. And the host city is San Antonio, Texas. Now, they say everything is bigger and better in Texas. Well, I think it's pretty much true. If you don't believe me, then come to San Antonio and find out for yourself. Now, I'm a big fan of San Antonio. I love going there. I've been there several times. Now, if you have never been to San Antonio, if you've never had the pleasure, then here are the top things to do in San Antonio. You can find this information or this list at the uh, getaway.com website. Just look up San Antonio. So first and probably the most iconic is the Alamo. Now, if you don't know what the Alamo is, first of all, shame on you, uh, then most likely you didn't grow up in Texas, right? You didn't have uh, the education you should have. So, uh, the Battle of the Alamo was a pivotal battle in the Texas Revolution in 1836. The Alamo remains impressively preserved, and again, one of the top tourist attractions in Texas. So, little story, my children were all born in Texas, but uh, they spent most of their young lives living in Colorado. Well, one day, my family, we were talking about something, and the subject the Alamo came up. We were talking about the Alamo, Davy Crockett, and Jim Bowie. And my kids asked, you know, what is the Alamo? (laughs) I was in utter shock. I, I said, what do you mean, what is the Alamo? I said, don't they teach you this in school? Never heard of it, they tell me. Don't know what you're talking about, Dad. I realized right then and there, this was my biggest parent fail. I I failed my children. So what did I do? I packed up my family and we immediately moved back to Texas. It's called Texas history, folks. Again, everybody should learn it. Remember the Alamo. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you have no idea what the Alamo is, then you need to come to the conference and I'll tell you all about it. So let's get back to our list. Next on the list is dine at a Mexican restaurant on the Riverwalk. Now this is great. Downtown San Antonio sets itself apart from other cities, from most cities, with its winding river cutting through the center of the city. Now the Riverwalk offers dining, shopping, seasonal activities, but regardless of the time of year, there is never, and I repeat this, there is never a bad time to have traditional Tex-Mex food, especially if it's down by the river. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't know what Tex-Mex is, then honestly, I feel sad for you. It it saddens my heart that you've never experienced the greatness of Tex-Mex. So again, come to San Antonio, come down, I'll meet you on the river walk and we'll enjoy some Tex-Mex together. Now, did you know that San Antonio is one of the most haunted cities in America? Well, now you do. Visitors who are looking for something a bit on the spooky side can have their pick of ghost tours. You know, they operate throughout the city, all promising a healthy taste of tragic tales, twisted history, and some gruesome facts. So these walking tours, they're a unique blend of information, sightseeing, and entertainment. All allowing participants to see the streets of downtown San Antonio in a whole different light. Now, if you're more of a thrill seeker, Six Flags Fiesta Texas is one of the largest amusement parks in the country, and it offers dozens of thrill rides, there's shows and activities. Fiesta Texas spans over 200 acres and features famous rides such as the Scream, the Iron Rattler, Goliath, and the Roadrunner Express. So, if roller coasters are your thing, then this might be the place for you. Now, if you're more on the chill side and you want to relax, then stroll through the historic Pearl Brewery. And it's located north of downtown in the Pearl Brewery District. Now, this is a new area which features restaurants, shops, and fun activities. This district has been converted from an old brewery when it combines new and old elements for a unique spin. Visit during the weekend to experience farmer's markets, fresh produce and snacks, but make sure that you stop in for a drink at Hotel Emma featuring one of the best bars in San Antonio. Now here's some exciting news. The last two weeks of April, which just so happens to be when we will be at the conference in San Antonio, San Antonio hosts the famous San Antonio Fiesta. Now Fiesta celebrates San Antonio's culture and history by throwing lavish parades with traditional Tex-Mex goodies and Mexican music. So Nyasa, short for Night in Old San Antonio, is a fun nighttime block party with food stations dancing and colorful clothing. So I'm up for a block party, how about you? If you are, join me at the Fiesta in San Antonio. Now you can ascend the Towers of America and the Tower of America was built in 1968 for the World's Fair. Now this is a 750 foot tower that offers one of the best views in San Antonio. It still stands as the tallest building in San Antonio and for a small fee, you can ride the elevator to the top and see the panoramic view of the city. Or, now this is where I come in because I love food, or you can dine in the Towers Chart House restaurant at night and you can witness the city lights twinkling in the moonlight. Now, if you want a peaceful stroll, how about going through the Japanese Tea Gardens, also known as the Sunken Gardens, which is built on an abandoned rock quarry in Brackenridge Park. In 1918, construction began to turn the site into a Japanese garden. Now, this includes stone arches, bridgeways, walkways, an island, and a Japanese pagoda. The gardens also house a bamboo room, which serves tea, light lunches. To the south of the park, the Sunken Gardens Amphitheater hosts uh, regular cultural programs, if that's of interest to you. Now rounding out the list, take a trip to Fredericksburg. Now Fredericksburg, Texas is a tiny gem of a town located 70 miles north of San Antonio. Now you might ask yourself, why would I want to go to Fredericksburg? Well, the town is known for its wineries and day trips, tours and tastings that can all be arranged on the winery's website. There's also shopping and a popular hobby in Fredericksburg. As the town is a home to a number of quaint antique shops. If you visit during the wildflower season then you will be able to view the stunning blue bonnets. Now the blue bonnet is the official state flower of Texas. So lots of good things to do in San Antonio. Make your plans now to meet me there. You know if you need some culture I'll see you at the Alamo. If you just need to unwind, the fiesta block party is all ours. Either way, start making your plans now for San Antonio. Now it's time for What's On My Mind. So, today I'm talking about record retention, specifically sterilization records. Now, you may have heard this rant from episode number 47 uh, when I did some frequently asked questions. But good news, if you have heard this before, hey, this will be a refresher for you. So, I often get this question, and that's why I'm bringing it up again. Uh, you know, it's really a frequently asked question. So this is a good question, and that's because there is no specific answer found within the standards. You know, there's nothing that says you need to keep records for X, Y, and Z years. Right? And so it can be confusing. It can be difficult to answer, especially if you're new, even if you're old and you just, you've just always heard something. So the AMI standards, FT-79 standards are very broad. And it basically just says that it's up to each facility to determine how long you're going to keep your records. And that's really because each facility is different. Potentially each state is different or your local regulations are different, right? And that's why they say that. That's why they don't put a a specific answer on it because it could be different depending on where you're located. The problem is, is it's not a very helpful statement. It requires you to go do some work now i'm going to do uh, some of the work for you here if i were you if i were in this situation here's kind of the advice that i would pass on to you now first question is does your facility process ethylene oxide eo so if you do uh, you may have heard that you need to keep those records for 30 years now we're just talking ethylene oxide here okay folks now there is a document uh, it's not ST79. It's called Amy ST41, and it's titled uh, Ethylene Oxide Sterilization in Healthcare Facilities, 2012. is when it uh, was published. If you process EO, then you might need this document. You might want to have this document in your library at your facility. And again, you're going to find uh, a similar statements in ST79 standards. Uh, and it really just says sterilization records should be retained according to the policy and procedures established by the individual healthcare facility. All right, so for ethylene oxide, okay, it goes on to say that uh, in one of the documents, the employees must be notified of their personal monitoring results within 15 days when the monitoring report is available, and a copy of the monitoring records must be kept in the employee's file. And all of this is in accordance with the OSHA AME single user license. Th- these records, you know, it's really saying these records must be maintained by the healthcare care facility for the duration of the employment at least 30 years after. Okay, here are the exact references or the wording from OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety Health Administration. So the exact wording, and this is under exposure measurements, and it can be found So all you have to do is Google 1910.0 one zero four seven and then if you want to you go k2i and this is going to be for exposure measurements and it says that the employer shall keep an accurate record of all measurements taken to monitor employee exposure to eto now it's a little outdated that's why we're going to see eto but uh you must keep an accurate record of all monitoring to exposures to eto or eo as prescribed in paragraph D of this section. And then you wanna scroll down just a little bit to KT and it says that the employee shall maintain this record uh, for at least 30 years. Okay, so here's where we have that 30 years comes into play, and it's from OSHA, and this is for monitoring employee exposure to EO. All right, not steam, but gaseous ethylene oxide. And so later on in that document, you want to look at medical surveillance because this is another thing you need to make sure you're doing. And that's medical surveillance 1910.1047K3I. Again, just Google this information. It's going to pop up uh, for you. Now, this says the employer shall establish and maintain an accurate record for each employee subject to medical surveillance. So you have to keep medical records for employees, working with EO, right? And then if you go down again and look at k 3 I, which is just a few uh, sentences down, it says that the employer shall ensure that this record is maintained for the duration of the employment plus 30 years. Now, this doesn't say keep the sterilization records for 30 years. It says keep medical surveillance documents for duration of the employment plus 30 years. So if they're employed for 20 years, so you keep the records for 20 years and then 30 years past that, so a total of 50 years. Okay, again, important, it doesn't say sterilization records for 30 years, uh, just exposure monitoring records and then medical surveillance records. Okay, now here's where your facility has to decide what to do. Here's where you have to make the decision about sterilization records for EO And if I were in your shoes, this is what I would do. I would keep the sterilization records to correspond to the exposure monitoring records or medical surveillance records, okay? Again, it's up to you. It's up to your facility to decide. You need to get with your folks, your multidisciplinary team and make this decision, but I just wanted to give you the information so you can make that informed decision. Again, all the information for EO sterilization can be found on OSHA website. And again, it's 1910.1047. And you're gonna look at uh, K2I and then K3I, right? So just review those documents and then you will be able to make your decision. Okay, now Steam Sterilization Records. Now, this is what most of us are working with. This is what most of us care about. Now, I've always heard uh, folks say that you must keep sterilization records for three years. Actually, you know, I've heard all sorts of numbers, but three years seems to be a common theme. Now, I never really understood where three years came from. And again, my suspicion is that the three years kind of corresponds with the Joint Commission triannual Survey. Now that's just me guessing. This is not, I repeat, this is not the Joint Commission saying you keep it for three years for their survey. But that that's just kind of seems rational that people would come up with that number. Hey, every triennial survey, uh, I have the information for the past three years, then I'm gonna throw away and then start over. Again, that's, that's just what I've heard. It's just a rumor, that's just me guessing. So how long should you really keep the records? So let's, let's think about it like this. Does your facility process any type of implantable devices? How long does the operating room keep the records of implantable devices, such as like plates and screws, uh, knee and hip implants? How long is the operating room keeping these records? Or does your facility participate in any type of IUSS? Has your facility ever had or will have a healthcare-associated infection. Okay, these are all kind of legal considerations, right? So here's what I recommend. What are the statute of limitations? What are, you know, how long should you keep records for a lawsuit in your state or local area? Uh, In my opinion, sterilization records, again, this is just my opinion, sterilization records should be kept long enough to satisfy these statute of limitations. So I recommend that each facility reach out to their facility risk and legal department along with their operating room, you know, bring them in too and determine what those limitations are. You know, how long do you need to keep these records in case there is a lawsuit or their litigation brought against your facility. You know, depending on those limitations, you know, you can then determine Uh, with the legal department, with the operating room, with your risk department, how long records should be kept for your facility. And as always, if there are any governance, whether it's state or local, that are more strict than what you determine, then you need to abide by those regulations. So use your multidisciplinary team. Don't take this upon yourself. Use use the resources at your facility to help you determine how long your sterilization records should be kept. And once you have that determined, then go ahead and make your policy and procedure to reflect what you guys decided at your facility. And then you will have the amount of time you're going to keep your sterilization records. All right, so I hope that clears up uh, sterilization records for you or at least Gives you some information that you can bring to your team at your facility, and then you can make that informed decision and then create your policy and procedure. And that's going to do it for this segment of What's On My Mind. Now it's time for Mailbox Mania. So today in Mailbox Mania, we are looking at the Process Magazine, which is a publication of Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA. And this is the brand new January, February 2022 publication. Now we have a couple great articles for you in this segment. And the first is titled Real-World Findings from Recent Practice Reviews Performed in Endoscopic Processing Areas. So the learning objectives for this article, review findings from the recent consultative practice reviews, discuss why some practices keep occurring even when clear guidance recommends against them, and then discuss strategies for fixing lapses in best practices. So the article reads, why are some practices so slow to change? As members of the clinical affairs team at Healthmark Industries, so this is written by Seth Heady from Healthmark. So as members of the clinical affairs team at the Healthmark Industries, our educators are privileged to be invited to review current practices in processing departments all across the country. Unfortunately, time and again, our team finds the same practice deviations repeated in endoscope processing suites, regardless of size or location. Why do these practices persist even when clear guidance against them is provided by the standards and best practice organizations? Now this lesson explores a few repeated issues regarding cleaning verification, endoscope transport, and endoscope storage that our team encounters on a regular basis. So really good information from this article. And you know, again, it reviews uh, the current practices that it sees when they go out into different facilities. Um, I specifically like, uh, you know, it goes into the three areas that they talked about, the cleaning, verification, and it talks about endoscope transport and endoscope storage. Now, in uh, objective two, which is, again is discuss why uh, practices keep occurring, it suggests some some reasons that you can look up uh, when you get this article, but I'll go ahead and read a couple here for you. Under cleaning verification, it suggests that some processing professionals rationalize that not performing the tasks due to lack of time or lack of space. You know, I can see that. I've, I've seen different, you know, areas. Uh, generally what they, you know, from my experience, they, they try to change a, a, a space that they current, currently have into a suite, right? And it doesn't have, again, that, that space that, that is needed to correctly process scopes. And then there's always that time factor, which is a big factor. The article also talks about transport issues and suggests that proper transport practices for endoscopes are often dismissed because of the short distances they travel, right? So extremely poor practices are often allowed because employees claim that they're only going across the hall, right? So uh, interesting, interesting. And then one of the storage issues uh, with, again, we're talking about semi-critical devices, is because these devices are seen as less of an infection risk, right? Non-compliance with proper storage conditions are seen as less important. And as you all know, that this is simply uh, not true. So this is a great article. Again, uh, lots of good information, especially uh, for endoscopes, Uh, But again, I think you could, even though the article is specifically for endoscopes, I think we can see a lot of these different uh, practices, especially the ones that aren't uh, good practices. We can see that in our everyday sterile processing practices. So good article. Uh, I suggest you check it out even if you don't process scopes. And then our next article is Planning Critical for Successful Cross-Training. And the learning objectives for this one, uh, list the types of employee cross-training opportunities, identify the benefits and potential drawbacks for cross-training, describe the components of an effective cross-training program. Okay, so this article reads, and it starts off with a conversation and it says, "'Where's Betty?' Lisa, the second supervisor asked nervously. She called in sick today, Don't worry, someone is staying over to fill in, yells the first shift supervisor Tom as he's rushing out the door. This is bad news. Today was a busy total hip day, and no one knows how to clean and process these total hips as well as Betty. Lisa rapidly checks the remaining staff members, but no one is trained to properly clean the procedural set. Now she's dreading her entire night. So while this scenario may seem all too familiar, a well-defined cross-training program within the department or between departments could have prevented this turn of events or at least bad day. Cross-training makes covering absences easier, but is much more than that. And the article goes on and it talks about you know some interdepartmental cross-training, departmental cross-training, both of which is extremely important. So in, in objective three, it talks about uh, five critical components you know, to a successful cross-training program. Uh, one being creating a plan that requires determining which cross-training is mandatory and which is optional. Uh, next, uh, really having leaders define the program in their department and make sure it's in policies and procedures so it can be followed. Uh, Step three talks about kind of the rollout of the program. And then step four, uh, really recognition uh, that shows off staff members and what they're doing in their practices and the cost training. And then five, the final step uh, is maintaining the competencies or maintaining that program. So again, another good article and if you're not familiar with this segment uh, again you know i'm not going to read the entire article for you you can go back and read that but i want to hit the highlights and so if it sounds something that's interesting to you you can go back and read that full article And then our next one is maintaining the integrity of the assembly area and the objectives for this uh, article is discuss the importance of clean and controlled assembly area explain the technician's role in maintaining the physical environment of the clean assembly area and then outline the requirements for individuals entering the clean assembly area. Now this article reads, Each day in healthcare facilities across the world, instruments are used in surgery and then returned to sterile processing for reprocessing. Simply stated, instruments are clean, made safe for handling, inspected, packaged, sterilized, and stored until they're needed again. Now, the goal of this multi-step process is to contain the instruments and make them safe for use in future procedures. Many precautions must be taken when preparing patient-ready medical devices. After an instrument has been decontaminated, special care is required to help ensure that the instrument is not recontaminated before it's sterilized. To prevent instruments from coming in contact with possible contaminants, sterile processing professionals must maintain the clean assembly area and adhere to strict requirements for attire, hygiene, and behaviors. So for this article, it's going to examine the technician's role in providing a clean controlled environment during instrument assembly. Good article, extremely important. In Objective 2, it says, Technicians play an important role in maintaining the physical workspace. They are the guardians of the clean assembly area. You know, I think all too often we are concentrated on cleaning and sterilizing instrumentation that we kind of forget about the importance of keeping a clean working environment. right, so another great article, lots of good stuff to think about and ponder. Again, you can check out this article in the January, February HSPA process publication. And then our last article for today is titled, Preparing Education to Engage Adult Learners. All right, the learning objectives for this article explain the important aspects for delivering a captivating training session to adult learners, describe how to effectively plan a training session, and then discuss presentation methods for training sessions. So this article reads, As technicians become confident in their skills and begin looking for ways to grow and help others, trained fellow staff members should be considered. This lesson discusses how technicians, how you can effectively plan and present a training session. So it goes on and it talks about uh, those different aspects, again, how to uh, engage your adult learners. Objective number two, it talks about, you know, your presentations, like uh, one of the tips is avoid Uh, presenting a slide with the same text that has been shared verbally. So don't, if you have a slide that you're talking about, don't word for word, you know, keep your uh, slides uh, limited to what they say. Uh, It also talks about if a topic is based on a product or a process, then the trainer should take the approach of showing the content being presented using pictures or video clips, not just talking about it. So lots of good information if you are looking to up your game as a technician, if you want to get into start doing some uh, departmental training, uh, lots of good tips and tricks of how you can become a more effective presenter. So a good article. All four of these are great articles. Again, I've just given you some highlights. I think you should go back and read these. You know, in, in the process publication again uh january february issue so with that that's going to do it for this segment of mailbox mania all right well thanks for hanging out with me today hspa episode 55 is in the books Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code Alamo. Again, the code for this episode is Remember the Alamo. Keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time.